Hi, my name's Derek Redman. Welcome to Man Marking. We're asking, where's the talking lads? You only get into, out the game what you put into it, Shelley. Mm-hmm. And I put everything into it I could and still do for the people and for the people that I was playing for and the people that I was manager for. I didn't cheat them out of anything. So I put all my heart and soul to the extent that my family suffered. Do you regret that at all? Oh, yeah, I regret, oh, I regret it very much, yeah. Somebody said the football's a matter of life and death to you. I said, listen, it's more important than that. Welcome to Man Markham, the podcast that uses football as a vehicle to encourage men to become more comfortable talking about their mental health. Today, we're talking to Derek Redmond. Yep, uh, my name's Derek Redmond, um, former professional athlete and professional basketball player and professional rugby player. Um, but uh, most people obviously know me as, a, as an athlete, uh, former British European Commonwealth World Champion and two-time Olympian. Joining me on today's episode is Ryan Pulford. Ryan, how are we, mate? Really well, thanks, mate. Yeah, can't really complain too much. How about yourself? Yeah, good, mate. Little um, bank holiday weekend starting today, which is excellent. You were mentioning to me before we started recording that you filled in some form of survey about returning to, to football grounds. What was that all about? Yeah, well, to be honest, I think I probably filled it in because of um, missing the football over the Easter, Easter bank holiday. That is one of the um, highlights of the football calendar for me, those two games back-to-back. But um, yeah, there's a, I think, I can't remember the name of the company that's running it, but there's a, there's a returning to sports arenas, indoors and outdoors. It covers everything from like horse racing, cricket, football, um, some Olympic style events. And it was just all about safety, returning to, would you feel comfortable returning to grounds, stadiums, what would you like to see in place, stuff about travel, sanitising stations, the sale of alcohol, which seems to be a, a big thing when it comes to pandemics, that if you sip alcohol, you suddenly freak out and start licking people or something, I don't know. But um, I mean, I have seen you at the pub, so <laughs> legitimate <laughs> concerns. <laughs> but to be to be honest, I, I, I'm i quite comfortable returning. I'm fortunate in the sense of maybe I'm still, in, I'm clinging on to my 20s and I'm maybe not as vulnerable <laughs> as some other people. Um, so by nature, I'm probably I'm more comfortable to return, but I, I'm ready. I'm gagging for the footy to come back and I don't really want it to come back in a, pardon the pun, too sterilised situation where um, you're just like limited numbers of fans and you can't have a drink and you can't shout and all that stuff. I just want it back as it was. Yeah, It takes some time, I think, to build the confidence of people up. But um, I basically I, just build it out to say I was comfortable to return, to be honest. I think once um, I think once people are told that they're allowed to go back in, I think it'll take be very quick and people will settle into it again. Yeah. Because um, they'll be having fun, won't they? But yeah, no, I'm the same as you, mate. I, I'm kind of not really... You know, if if we're allowed to go back, but it's in it's in a completely different way to what it's you know like in you know the way that they did it around Christmas time where people they had a couple mm. of thousand fans in. I'm kind of a bit like not really interested in that to be honest with you because it's not it's still not the same. It's still not what it is that it's going for. I wouldn't be against if grounds and I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if some teams do this. Said here's a section for people that maybe are vulnerable or are a bit concerned or are with somebody who's perhaps concerned in the same way you have like family zones at games. I wouldn't be too bothered if they dedicated sections or part of the grant and then they dedicated sections to people who've maybe filled out a form with the local club and said, I am completely fine 
for maybe a period so you know that you're going to limit those because you're going to naturally get those people on you who are coming back a little bit nervous mm. and they start arguing with somebody who's being boisterous and you can just see it already so I want to maybe I, navigate I, around that I'd look forward to that just for the tweet that the clubs have put out and people saying that the game was gone underneath it. That's everything <laughs> yeah. I'd look forward to. Let's get on with today's episode anyway, right? We, uh, we've got Derek Redmond, former sprinter, former Olympic athlete on the show today. Uh, and this was one you and I did a, a short while back, wasn't it? One evening. And I think sort of particularly following on from the conversation that we had with, with Dan Abrahams on, on Monday's episodes where we were talking with sports psychologists, I think this was a really good opportunity for us to to talk with a former athlete, someone who performed at an elite level and and maybe get a little bit of an insight into what their mindset was. And, you know, most people will probably remember Derek from that um that really infamous moment in the Olympics in in Barcelona. And I think to come back from from that and to 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 do the things that he did post his sprinting career is incredibly interesting from a from a sports psychology background. So that was something that was really interesting for us to to discuss with Derek. And that brings us nicely on to the theme for today's episode. We always have a theme, Ryan. So do you want to give the listeners today's theme? Relays, recoveries and racism. Um, nice bit of alliteration there that you might, must have remembered from school days, Dan. That was it, mate. I thought, hit it with the three R's. That's the most important thing for this episode. Redmond relays, recoveries, and racism. That's what we should have done, shouldn't we? But never mind. <laughs> We've gone relays, recoveries, and racism, and that's our theme. Uh, if you, the listener, pick up on anything, any 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 discussion points, any themes that we haven't, make sure that you email them to us at manmarkingpodcast at gmail or tweet us uh, on Twitter. Tweet us on Twitter. That sounds weird, but yeah, tweet us on Twitter. Our our, um, our profile is at marking underscore man. And don't forget to use that hashtag, where's the talking lads, or hashtag WTTL. So we're now going to hand over to Derek's interview. We'll see you on the other side. You're listening to Man Marking. And just sort of wanted to know, from what age did you start training to be an elite athlete? Okay, so to be an elite athlete, that really didn't happen until I was in my late teens. Um, but I started actually uh, as a young athlete. I joined my first athletics club when I was seven. Um, did a bit of everything just because I enjoyed doing it. Um, but I didn't really begin to take it serious until I was about 15. And even at the age of 15, 16 years of age, I still had other, you know, um, other things that I was in, in, interested in. I mean, obviously I was at school and playing other sports. But by the time I was... 18, 19, then I was pretty much a committed full-time uh, professional, if you want to use that term, athlete. And did you have to make a decision in what sport you wanted to go into? Was you, it sounds like you're probably quite gifted at numerous sports. Um, yeah, to a certain degree. I mean, you know, the main three was rugby, basketball and athletics. Um, and that was because I did them all at school as well as football and a few other uh, sports. Um, Obviously, you know, athletics was the one I was was my top sport. Basketball would have been second. Um, and in my early sort of years, I really wanted to be a professional basketball player, but I had more success with the athletics than I did the basketball. Um, and then um, I, I kind of followed that success. So I didn't really have to make the choice. The choice kind of was made for me by the successes that I was having uh, with my athletics. And obviously a lot of dedication goes in, especially at such a young age, to, to be training constantly. Did, did you feel it took anything away from your formative years at all? Do you know what? Um, 
I didn't. Uh, and and I get asked that a lot. And, and you know, you, you, you read and you see and you hear these horror stories of kids not having no childhood and being, you know, whipped into shape by the coaches and parents because they're a talented pianist or athlete or whatever, you know, the case may be. And I, I was really fortunate that I had, um, I suppose you could just put it down as very supportive parents and whatever sport I wanted to do, they allowed me to do. And, you know, being a young kid growing up, I was a pain in the butt because, you know, I want to be a cricketer, so they buy me all the cricket gear next year. I want to be a tennis player, so I get all the tennis gear. I want to be a golfer, get all the golf gear. I want to be a footballer, <laughs> you know, and it, it kind of, you know, I was a typical kid like that. So um, as I kind of got involved in athletics relatively young, and it was a sport that I really enjoyed again because I, I had the most success with it, um, I just enjoyed doing it. Uh, and I got great support from my, as I say, from my mum and dad, but I never, ever felt pushed. And if at any time I wanted to stop, I could have done. I remember my old man saying to me once, he said, look, if you want to do this, I'll support you. I'll take you anywhere. I'll do what I can for you. But the only thing I ask in return is that you give it 100%. And he didn't want me to waste his time, effort and money, my coach's time or even my own time. And that was all he wanted in return. Brilliant. And was that almost a, a bit of a defining moment for you to say, I'm going to give this 100% with the athletics? Um. Not at that time because I was still quite young, um, and it was I was still doing other sports. I would have, I would have possibly been ten or eleven when my dad said that to me. So I was still playing a bit of football, still playing rugby, still playing basketball. And my dad took me everywhere and he goes, "I don't mind as long as you give all this one hundred percent and just don't waste anybody's time." Um, but you know, for me, uh, I took athletics seriously, semi-seriously, as I say, when I was about sixteen, and. 100% seriously when I turned uh, 18. And you seem to be someone who is naturally very competitive. Do you find that difficult to turn off at all? Uh, yeah, you, you, you might want to ask my wife that question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> she would be the best person to answer that. Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, ha being competitive is, is something very difficult to turn on and off. You know, um, the, you know there's two things I have which I don't know if they're good, bad or indifferent. I'm not the most patient person in the world and I'm, you know, I'm very competitive. Um, not a great mix when you think about it, actually, but it's, it's you know, they're, they're, they're those things that you really, you know, I have to work on patience and being patient and goodness knows what. And also with my competitiveness, it's something that's there. And if I get involved in any sport or anything, I want to be not just okay on it. I want to be, if I can, the best at all the people that I'm against at it. Um, and I want to compete at the highest level that I can in any any particular sport that I get involved in. So, yes, it's 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 something that I am. And I, I, I joke about, you know, about my wife. I mean, you know, we got four kids and we used to sit around the table and all six of us play um, uh, Monopoly. And I wouldn't give them an inch. And my wife said, no, let them land on it. No. Or, you know, go on it. No, no. If they're going to beat me, they're going to beat me fair and square. And we'd have kids crying and all sorts of stuff. But I didn't care. You're going to beat me. You beat me fair and square. Otherwise, you're bankrupt. <laughs> Get the hell out of here. Go on. Fling <laughs> your own. <laughs> so in that case, then, how did you deal with, with losing in anything? Um, uh, you know, that's a good question. You know, you have to deal with losing because it doesn't matter who you are um at what you do or how good you are you're not gonna win every single time you step into your own arena whatever that arena is. um you know and there's times when you're beaten by the better person better team and you've just gotta 
tip the hat. Um, even if you performed well yourself, so you've got to look at your own performance. Um, if you perform bad and been beaten, then you, you've got to look at why didn't that race go as well as I wanted it to, let's say, in athletics rather than say. So there's a lot that can be learned from um, defeats. And in some instances, and in a lot of instances, there's more that can be learned through defeat than they can actually through winning. Um, so it's not a, a case of, um, you know, enjoying losing, but it's, you know, sometimes you have to accept that you've been beaten by the better person. Um, there was absolutely nothing I could do. I ran a perfect race and just somebody ran quicker. Um, and that's a frustrating thing and you're, it just makes you dig deep and train a bit harder. Or you ran a terrible race and got beaten by, you know, beaten and you shouldn't have done because you did X, Y, Z wrong. And I've got to learn, you know, what it is that, uh, um, that I did wrong and make sure that I don't do it again or I do something that I should have done in the race that I didn't do, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And I imagine in, in your world of athletics, it's such fine margins as well. Whereas I suppose in football or basketball, there's probably a bit more of a, a luck element or a team can play defensively and come away with a win. But in your game, it's very much like narrowing it down to milliseconds. Yeah. And, you know, the thing about it is, is, you know, I had a great team of people around me as an athlete. Um, I think there's 11 other people plus myself, 12, I think it was, when you consider, you know, Strength and conditioning coach, flexibility coach, exercise physiologist, sports psychologist, track coach, all the people that you have in there. And they are all experts in their own field. And they give you all the information and, and their, uh, you know, and their experiences to, to, to get you at your best. But when you get out on that track, um, even though they are there with you, they can't run with you. And you've got to put everything together, you know, at the right time, um, be in the right headspace as well. And you've got to pull out that performance when it really matters. Um, you know, and if it's an Olympic final, you're in the 100 metres for argument's say you've got 9.9, let's say 10 seconds to get this right. And if you get it wrong, you've got to wait another four years. So there's a lot of pressure uh, on with that. And you've got to be able to get these things absolutely right. And as you said, it, it, it does come down to, you know, fine, very, very, very fine tuning on, on certain occasions to get these things right. Um, and you mentioned, you know, football or another sport, they have that same issue in their own sports in a different way. But one of the things I found really difficult in team sports, and I love team sports, but the one thing I found really difficult is I could have an absolute perler of a game, but the rest of the team have a nightmare and we lose. Or I could have a nightmare and the rest of the team have a good game and we win. And I find that on both ways, I find that quite a difficult scenario to to get my head around um and the one good thing about athletics if i got it right i got it right if i got it wrong i got it wrong um there was no sort of a fallback either way so just on that then if if you lost or you won individually or you lost and won as a basketball player in a team sport was your reaction to to both differently did you get more or less satisfaction from either of them or was it sort of the same thing delivered differently? No, I wouldn't say I'd get less satisfaction from winning in a team sport as I did as an individual, not at all. But I would be very critical on my own personal performance um, in both. And that is what was the same, whether it's in athletics or a team sport, is my own personal performance. You know, do I feel I contributed, you know, you know, to the team's performance? You know, if you take football, um, a goalkeeper doesn't score any or many goals, but actually saving a goal is as good as scoring a goal. So if he was to 
look at him and compare himself to a striker, he's not going to hold himself in, in very high esteem. Um, but if he looks at him in what he did as a goalkeeper, then obviously he's going to say, wow, you know, I saved one penalty and there was three goals that could have gone in and I managed to get a fingertip or foot or whatever to it. And, you know, we ended up winning the game by a goal, for argument's sake. So he's been just as important as the other person at the other end of the, uh, at the, other end of the pitch. So it's a bit like that for me in, in, in team sports. Even though it's a team sport, I do look at my individual performance and it's not a case of scoring the most baskets or scoring the most goals or, or whatever, but it's did I contribute and do I feel that I actually made you know, made a difference and be a part of that team's success or or loss, whatever the case may be. And did you see yourself as a as a good team player? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you mean in athletics, and you know, people always say, "Oh, athletics, you know, you're in, you're an individual sport." It's not because, as as I explained before, I've got 10, 11 other people that's in my team that I spend more time with from a training point of view than I do when I'm, you know, the, 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 the racing. The only time I don't spend time with them and they're there with me is when I'm actually on that track. And even before getting onto that track, there might be two or three of them with me, whether it be my coach, my sports psychologist, uh, my master, who was somebody else, they were still in and around with me anyway. So I always used to see it as a team sport. The relay is a team sport. Um, and when you look at the relay, if you really want a, a, a good epitome of an ultimate team, I, I feel in athletics, the relay team was a good example because the four by 400 meter relay team is made up of the best four 400 meter runners in great britain or another word for them is the best four rivals over 400 yeah. um and we got on so well we worked with each other and it wasn't just the four you know we're talking about you know the top 10 12 400 meter runners we used to meet regularly you know we still meet and play golf you know to this day we've been retired 30 odd years you think we'd let go but we haven't um <laughs> and uh you know so we yeah you know we all of us, I would regard as ultimate team, you know, team players because uh, we needed to be. And what are the pressures like both of training to be an Olympian, but also competing and also the coverage that comes with it with the world media? Um, okay, the world media, you don't really take any notice off, to be honest. You get on and do your own thing, and what happens with the media happens. Um, you don't really think about that on a day to day basis, that just it's, it's, it just seems to happen. Um, you know, as regards pressure from, from competition and training, again, it's, it's about as much pressure as you want to put on yourself. I, you know, again, I would advocate that I was possibly my own worst critic. Um, you know, between me and between my dad, who was very uh, close, I'm still close to him now, and he was a, a really important part of my uh, athletics career. Um, you know, we were my harshest critics and we would be a lot harsher on me than anybody else would, whether it be other coaches or, or, or somebody from the media. Um, obviously, you know, there's pressures in competition and, and, um, and when I say there's pressures in competition, you know, that could come from your sponsors hoping and expecting you to medal and all that sort of stuff. And um, just being in that cauldron, that environment of, an Olympic final, the build up to it, you know, the warming up, the going to report for the race and being in the report room for an hour before just with the other seven other guys that you're competing with. Obviously, there's that kind of uh, pressure there. But it, again, that's all part, part of the parcel of being able to perform on the day and produce a performance on the day that, that matters because it's not just about well, I've got the fastest time, I'm going to win. It's so far from that, it's untrue. 
So with that in mind, how did you sort of manage the, the mental pressures of it? Or did, and you mentioned before, I think there was a psychologist in the team or you, you had somebody in your team who dealt with that. How much yeah. emphasis was put on it? I mean, I, I mean, I was very fortunate that I was a very positive uh, person. I am a very positive person. Uh, and that stemmed firstly uh, and foremost from my old man. Um, you know, that's something that's been instilled into me from a very young age. My dad's a very positive person. He's a go-getter, very successful in business. Um, got a bit of a rags to riches kind of story. Um, and, you know, he instilled that into, into me. So I was fortunate to have a built-in confidence builder, stroke confidence booster um, in, you know, um, in the form and shape and form of my dad. Um, but a sports psychologist, um, for many years, I didn't particularly felt I needed one. Um, and, and, you know, but the guy I was introduced to who became my sports psychologist was somebody who could just help that 0.01% extra. It wasn't something that I needed. And, and it, I, I, you know, I lived off every word or everything that he said. But there were just little things that he helped me with. And I went through a lot of times with injuries and just to keep me uh, keep me motivated and literally gave me little exercises to do, not physical, more mental exercises to do, to keep me um, focused on my training, to keep my head in the game, basically, because it's very easy to be demoralised when you're injured and you're not training or racing and all your peers around you are running and racing. And, you know, in my case, like there were times when I was injured and there's major champions going on and these guys were winning in slower times that I had run before I got injured. Um, and that's, you know, a bit of a smack in the face, um, really, to, you know, to, to have to go through that. Um, and there's things that, yeah, you know, that people can say and do. And a sports psychologist is, is trained and to know to say the right thing at the right time. Or more importantly, they know when not to say something. And that's just as important as knowing what to say. Absolutely. And can you remember any sort of tips that you had to, to stay positive or any coping mechanisms? Yeah, I mean, there was, I can remember one. Um, so leading up to the 1992 Olympics, um, I don't know, three, four months out, I was injured yet again. And I was down um, a, a clinic doing my rehab work with my exercise physiologist. And you've got to imagine this, it's a, it's a little private practice and the gym was sort of downstairs and upstairs was all the treatment rooms in his office. And it was kind of like a gallery landing. So if you came out one of the treatment rooms or his office, you could look down and see the rehab gym. And I uh, had my consult with him and had some treatment, this and that, and I'm down in the gym doing, doing some stuff. And unknown to me, my um, exercise physiologist, I don't know if it was my physio, came out, looked down and watched me, just, you know, observed me for a few minutes. And he could see, and he was absolutely right, my mind wasn't in it. I just wasn't, you know, I was going through the motions. There was real no passion or, or anything in the work that I was doing. Because I, at that point, I remember thinking, all I'm doing is getting myself in shape to get injured again. And I used to call myself the world's fittest injured athlete at, at one point, um, because that's how it, it felt. So anyway, um, he then, unknowns to me, as I say, just observing me, he then goes into his office and calls my psychologist and says, look, I'm with Derek at the moment. He, he doesn't know I'm, I'm talking to you, but I'm watching him train. His, his heart's not in it. And we're three, four months out from the Olympics. So I get a call out of the blue from my sports psychologist and says, how are you doing? I said, yes, yeah, all right. So I 
So that why don't we meet up? So we met up, we went and played nine holes of golf. And he said, I'll go and buy you a sandwich in the clubhouse. Um, we're having a conversation, starts off about golf, and then he quick talk about general athletics. And he goes, how's it all going? So I said, yes. All right, Brian, you know, it's getting there. I'm getting over this injury. And he said, how many days now between, uh, between now and the Olympic final? And I went, don't know, Brian, I don't know, it's three and a bit months away. And he went in his pocket and he pulled out a little pocket diary and he chucked it at me and he went, well, count. Okay, what now? Yeah, count. So I counted. And for the ease of this conversation, I'm going to say there was 100 days. Uh, to be fair, it wasn't far off of that. So I said, 100 days. Um, he went, right. And I chucked the diary back. He goes, no, I want you to keep that diary. And I said, why is that? He goes, because I already used to keep a training diary anyway. And he goes to me, he said, right. I want you to write in this diary every night, not like a training diary. The only thing I want to see in this diary is a number. And I went, okay. And he said, it's either going to be 0.5 or it's going to be one. It's all it's going to be. And every day in that diary, you either put 0.5 or you put one. And I said, okay. And he goes, right, what is going to determine to whether you put a 0.5 or a one is this. I don't care how the training session physically goes but if mentally you've gone in there and you know you've given it a hundred percent you put a one if you've only given it 95 percent, you put a 0.5 and he says and the night before the olympic final or the day before the olympic final me you your dad and your coach are going to talk with this up and i said okay seems okay didn't really think much of it then i went home that evening and i had some whatever training to do started off in the same mood that I was in. And then I remembered about this 0.5 and one. And I thought, I don't want to be putting a 0.5 in there on the first day. So I really went at it, gave it everything. Can't remember what train session was. That evening, I knew I'd given it 100%, so I put a one. Um, and that changed my attitude to training. Um, and actually, it took it away from the Olympic Games and being injured and put it, purely on making sure I put a one in this diary and not a 0.5 um, and the example I sometimes give is I don't know if you've got kids but when you have little babies and they're just learning to walk you know and you try and get them to balance they're all over the place but sometimes they balance on themselves when they've got a toy or something in their hand and they've taken their mind off standing and all of a sudden you take that toy away and they look around and they realize I've got no toy hold on a minute I'm standing I can't stand and they fall over um, and it's that kind of theory. I don't know if that, you know, makes sense. Um, and I'm not somebody who goes around nicking toys from babies and watching them fall out. <laughs> um, but it's it's that kind of thing. It took my mind off one situation and turned it onto another that still benefited the first situation. Does that make sense? It does. I think it's a fantastic story. It just shows you the, the mentality shift that, that happened. Yeah, and he's almost used your own competitive nature against itself. Absolutely, a hundred percent. And and the interesting thing was, we never did total it up the night before the final because obviously I, I didn't make the final. But I totally it up after, and I think it was on something like ninety five, or ninety five point five, something like that. So I'd pretty much given it a hundred percent from the point that he said to me to fill this diary out. And that probably worked much better than him ringing you that day and saying. I've heard you're not training to your full potential. What's gone wrong? Absolutely. Or pull your finger out, man up, come on, stop yeah. being a fool, you know. Um, 
and you know it, it was it was a conversation and it was something an exercise that I could use that enabled me without even realizing it to train harder than I had um, uh, and sometimes it doesn't have to be for the obvious reason um, it can be for a reason but not the reason that other people said I didn't tell anybody I'm not my coach and I forgot drinking, but I didn't tell anybody I was doing it uh, and I, I've used that in the work that I do now. I use that um, that little method for people in their in their own life, and it just it just works. So that's why I say he didn't necessarily, you know, I didn't have to sit down with him on a weekly basis and lay on a couch and tell him about my childhood, which to the untrained seem to think that's what a sports psychologist you know does or hypnotizes you to say you can beat. Anthony Joshua, he's only small. It's not like that. It's 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 very small triggers that uh, are within us that you can you can they have a, the ability to just flick those triggers in the right way, and it, it it puts you in motion to be able to you know move forward in a positive way rather than stay static in um, what I would refer to as a negative way. Absolutely. I think that's great advice. And uh, I've never really heard it explained like that either before, but it does really make sense when you when you break it down. Yeah. And it probably ties in quite nicely to, I imagine this is the most common question you asked about, the, the 1992 Olympic Games in Barcelona. Yeah. Very iconic footage. Makes a lot more sense now when you've just described the relationship you have with your, with your father as well. Can you kind of just describe that moment to us? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'd won the first round. I was the fastest qualifier out of all the 400 meter runners. I won the second round. Both of those rounds, I had literally walked around. I, you know, I didn't break into a sweat. There was way more to, to give, way more to come. Um, and the semi-final, it was the first four to qualify through to the final. I decided to run a decent race to get myself a decent lane. Um, and yeah, everything was going well. I was physically in great shape, mentally in great shape. And that's really important um, because I always say to be a champion, you got to have two things. You've got to be physically in shape, which is kind of obvious, but you also need to be mentally in shape. And what I mean by that is, you know, you got to know your game plan. You got to be focused. You got to be switched on. You've got to you know, be in the groove, be, you know, the confidence, everything, everything needs to be firing and everything needs to be, um, all firing in the same direction, the confidence, all of the uh, the things that you need to perform need to be there. And that's why I talk about being mentally in shape. And I had all of that. Um, and a lot of that built up through the rounds, the training and everything, because the better you run and the easier it is and the quick times and it's easy, that gives you confidence, all this sort of stuff. So, you know, um, there was no expectations of me not winning that semi-final, um, running the personal best, making the final and knowing that I could still run faster in the final. Uh, and the race started off the way I wanted. Um, first bend was great. I'm running down the back straight. I'm catching the guys on the outside of me. I can't particularly see anybody on the inside of me at this stage. And then halfway down and say, you know, pop, hamstring goes. Um, and uh, it didn't take long for me to realise what it was. Um, and I grabbed the back of my leg. And, you know, at that point, you just want to stop instantly. Um, I don't know if you've ever pulled a hamstring running you know, running quick or anything, but it's not the nicest thing. And to give you an idea, the back straight 100 meters in a 400, I would cover in about 10.2 seconds. So I was, I was rolling. I was pretty, you know, going pretty quick. And for that to go, it's a very, very painful uh, experience. And I grabbed my leg and 
I shouted out a few things. Um, I'll leave you to work out some <laughs> of the words that I might have used. But um, um, and I hit the deck, and I was, as my daughter used to say when I was younger, I was effing and jeffing away, um, and um, you know, just yeah, it gone. You know, I'd, angry, frustrated, annoyed at the world, annoyed at my hamstring, annoyed at athletics, you name it. I was absolutely fed up, angry and annoyed with. I'm trying to say all this without swearing. Um, Feel free to swear. <laughs> <for teaser. laughs> and um, uh, I, I remember slapping the track and sort of saying, oh, for flip's sake, didn't say flip, but why me? Why me? And I was just beside myself and that went on for about I don't know 10 12 15 seconds maximum and then I remembered where I was now physically I've broken down I'm injured but mentally I'm still in shape and I remember quickly sitting up and looking around and I'm sort of looking to see where the other athletes were and they had about 120 meters to go 110 meters to go and I remember thinking to myself come on Derek it's the Olympic semi-final get up and finish the race because you can still qualify and in my head I still felt I could qualify because mentally I'm still in top shape and I get up and I start hobbling and I hobble the first 50 meters thinking that I'm going to catch these guys and then when I got to 200 meter mark um, so I'm now halfway around so I've hobbled 50 meters I'm now at the 200 meter mark I decided to glance across to see how much I was catching these guys then I saw an empty track and that's when, if you like, the, the mental side caught up with the physical side. And I realized those guys had finished. And, you know, the two choices I had was either to stop or to carry on. And I decided to carry on because I felt I could live with finishing eighth and being knocked out in the Olympic Games, but I couldn't live with not finishing. And that was the reason why I um, uh, continued after the after hobbling 50 metres. Um, but the, the, the thing that got me up is I honestly thought that if I got up and started running, I would actually qualify uh, for the final, which even I can't say with a straight face without smiling because it's, it's absolutely crazy and ludicrous. However, with the right mindset and your mind is in the right place and, and as I say, you're, you're mentally in shape, I honestly believe there isn't anything that you can't achieve from a mental point of view, but physically is where things change and i'm a massive believer that a lot of people who set themselves targets and goals give up on them uh mentally first before it's physically impossible and that's the wrong way it you know if a goal isn't going to happen it should be because you cannot do it physically or it's not going to happen physically because of whatever reasons rather than it being mental but a lot of people actually give up on their goals mentally before they find out that physically it's not possible to do. And there is a big difference between the two. And on paper, everything you've just described is, is the worst nightmare for any athlete, any sports star, and it must have been heartbreaking. But did you realise at the time it would become such an aspiring, iconic moment? No, not a clue in the world. You know, if I'm going to be honest, I did it for me. It was for my own reason not for anybody else. Um, it wasn't for Team GB. It wasn't for Queen and Country. Uh, it wasn't for my coach. Um, wasn't even for my dad. It was for me because I felt that I could live, as I say, with for the rest of my life. You know, someone said to me, oh, what happened to the Olympics? Well, 
I finished eighth and got knocked out in the semi-final. Wow, you made it to a semi-final Olympics. That's very pretty cool. Yeah, but I'd like to have made it to a final. I can live with that. But I couldn't live with, oh, well, I didn't finish. That doesn't sit well with me. Um, so um, that was the reason. But I had no idea that it was going to be accepted in the way that it was by the world. Um, you know, not a clue. I had no idea my old man was going to make it onto the track. I mean, if that was now, it'd be shot or tasered. Um, it would not, <laughs> you know, it would not even make it onto the track. So that was, you know, um, the strangest thing. So with my dad, with me doing what I did and my dad carry, you know, coming onto the track. And the reason my dad came onto the track, again, was nothing to do with what was happening in the, in the stadium was because of me. And all he saw was his son um, with an obvious uh, injury, a hamstring pull. My old man will have known it was a hamstring pull. He'd been around the sport long enough. And my old man's first thought was, I need to stop him running because we don't know how bad he's damaged this. With me running on it, it's only going to make it worse. We've got the relay to come in eight days, however, he still might be okay to run in the relay and salvage something from these Olympic Games. So his whole idea was originally to come on and stop me running. And then when he came on and, and um, sort of said, Derek, Derek, it's me, it's me, it's me. And I remember turning around and saying, get me back into lane five. No, he said, you don't need to do this. And I went, I do, just effing will get me back into every lane five. I'm going to effing finish his race. <laughs> and I'm just letting off of my old man. And I will tell you, as I tell every everybody when I speak and talk about this, it is the only time I've ever been able to shout and swear at my dad and get away with it. Um, <laughs> um, you know, there was no other time in my life I would have even dreamed of doing that. And I remember my old man just saying, all right, okay, okay, we'll, we'll finish together, we'll finish together. And, and that was it. And then he put, he, I put my arm around him, he put an arm around me, and then I just said, I can't believe this is that, like, why me? And I'm, I was off again and I completely lost it. So, but I had no idea the world was going to react to it in the way that they did. And my wife said something to me, uh, or she said it on a few occasions. And she said, do you know what? That wouldn't have had the same effect had it been a teammate, your coach or an official. But the fact it was your dad pulled so many uh, more heartstrings than if it had just been anybody else. And she's absolutely right. Absolutely. It was so poignant. And it, it almost epitomised what the Olympics is about. It, you saw almost your years of dedication and your years of hard work and the emotion and everything that goes into it come out in one go. You normally only see that when somebody wins at the finish line, but we actually got to see the human level of elite sport. Yeah, and it, you know, and, and it also shows, um, um, you know, it also shows that it doesn't matter who you are, what you're doing, you can be, you know, the best in the world or one of the best in the world, which I was at the time, you know, stuff can go wrong things can kind of go against the grain and you're going to be challenged in life. It doesn't matter who you are, how much money you've got, how successful you are, how big, strong you are, how confident, how doesn't matter. You know, you're going to get tested at some point. And it's how you deal with that knockdown, really, that I think defines us. And what uh, I wanted to know then, Derek, is how were you in the resulting couple of days? From that moment happening? Oh, I mean, I was I was a broken man. I mean, I was absolutely gone. I mean, it was just the worst thing because it was injury number, I don't know, in its teens. I mean, I'd, I'd already had you know, seven or eight operations. 
uh, on different parts of my body during my first career at that stage. Um, and, you know, I'd already missed major championships. Um, I, you know, um, I'd miss, I'd, I'd run in some, but I'd miss other major championships. I'd watched other people, as I said before, win medals in times that were slower than I'd run in that same year before I got injured. You know, um, so I'd lost medals. I, you know, I lost winning medals, win, you know, earning money, all that sort of stuff, the fame, the fortune, everything. And that was just, you know, we thought we'd got over it. We thought we were on the other side of it. Training had gone well. I had a few little niggles leading up to it. And I had had a couple of operations earlier that year. Um, but we thought that this was it. At last, we're going to get a little bit of a respite and I'm getting there to show the world what, you know, show the world what I can do. And it didn't happen. And it was just, oh man, not again. So I, I would say, you know, forget two days. It took me two years pretty much to, to kind of come to terms with it, to be able to talk about it, certainly to be able to watch it without really getting upset um, uh, and, and frustrated and annoyed with, with what happened. It was, you know, pretty much a two year, a two year process to get over it. And we kind of talked about leading up to that moment, the mentality shift and how you trained yourself mentally and you're in a great place. But in terms of post-race, your mental health, was there any actual support in that regard? From well, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, my old man obviously was always there for me. Um, for the first 18 months, my whole team was still there for me because I was still trying to make a comeback. And what, uh, happened in the next 18 months again not everybody knows so in the next 18 months I had seven operations um, and I would have an operation get back into training break down have another operation do the rehab get back into training break down have another operation and this went on for for, for a year and a half and um, after th this one particular surgeon who performed all seven operations um, he, he I went to see him in some part in 1994 and he basically says to me look Derek you know you've got to stop putting yourself through this you know we can't do any more for you your career's over you're never going to compete for your country again stop putting yourself through this and just go and get a regular job and live a regular life um and that was quite a tough one and um I you know didn't like hearing that um I, I understood about the injuries um, I understood about it, it had a detrimental effect on my athletics career, but for some weird and wonderful reason, I couldn't, I couldn't digest the fact that I'd never represent my country again. And um, it, I, it took me great pleasure in sending that same surgeon a photograph two and a half, maybe three years later of me playing basketball for England. Uh, and I even personalised it and I put on it, you know, thanks, Doc, for your confidence, signed Derek Redman, international athlete and international basketball player. Um, so, you know, you were talking about losing and, and uh, before and, you know, that's the equivalent of a serious loss. And I used what he said to me to kind of fuel me to, not necessarily to prove him wrong, but because I, I didn't know I was going to play basketball for England at that point, but I wasn't going to let him tell me that I cannot compete or play sports to the highest level that I can um, and you know thankfully for me that happened to be you know at the highest level um, in a you know in a second sport and so much so that I remember after um, a few weeks after playing basketball for England I quit basketball because 
there'd been a number of people that played for their country or represented their country in two sports. But at that time, then nobody had ever done it in three sports. And I thought, I'm really going to rub his face in it and try and be the first person ever to compete for their country in three sports. And that's when I turned to rugby, played local league, um, then got picked professionally. So did exactly the same as I did with basketball uh, and then played professionally in basketball and then um, tried out for a couple of England rugby sevens teams. But alas, didn't quite make it. But um, be, having been professional in three and competing for my country in two, I guess is no mean feat. And then when I got out of professional sport, um, I still became national champion in another two individual sports. Uh, and I'm semi-pro as we speak at the tender age of 55 in another sport. So again, we come back to that competitive um, side that I have. It's very difficult to let go. Derek, is there, is there any element of it at all that, that comes down to, I mean, we've spoken to quite a lot of footballers who've, uh, either recently retired or are coming up to retirement age. And one of the things they talk about is about that fear of like the identity almost of, of being the, you know, being yeah. known as that person. Is there, Was there an element of that about it as well, which maybe kept you moving on and keep trying to do new things and do different challenges? Yeah, great, great, great question, Daniel. I mean, yeah, I mean, there is a side of you that, you know, um, that finds it difficult to be out of your small sporting world that you're in um and I, I and i say that with no disrespect um because whether you're in football as you just mentioned you know you spoke to a few footballs or in my sport in athletic those worlds are quite small relatively small when you when you really think of it at that level they're quite small if you're talking about you know you know top class footballers um whether they premier league championship league you know we're still talking a very small percentage of of footballers, talented footballers that play at that level. When you think of the hundreds of thousands of footballers that play the game. And uh, it is difficult to get out of that. And, um, you know, part of the identity problem is your ego. Um, you know, one of my presentations that I deliver um, is talking about the transference from the world of sport into the world of business. And I say there's a, there's a, a seven stage change curve that you go through. Um, and it doesn't matter what sport you're talking about. The first thing is when you're, when you're coming to the end of your career, um, is denial, you know, whether it's, especially if it's forced upon you through injury, age, performance, you know, you might still think I've got a couple of more seasons left in me. Oh yeah, I've got a couple more seasons, but let, let's just work with football for a minute. You know, you could be playing in a Premier League team or a Championship League team and, you know, the coach one day grabs you and calls you in the office and says, we need to have a conversation and, you know, I'm not going to sign you next year. Yeah, but coach, I've got another coach. Yeah, okay, thank you, but, you know, we're, we're not going to sign you. And the first thing is denial because you'll go away going, coach doesn't know anything. Well, no, I'll go and speak to one of the neighbouring teams, you know, in the same league and you, you think you can go to another team and they don't particularly want you and you know not because anyone's being rude or horrible because it's just the fact that you're not at your best anymore you're of a certain age injuries whatever the you know the reason so you might in football terms I don't know try a couple of leagues lower down you know you come down a league come down a league and you might scramble a couple of more seasons playing at a slightly lower league you never know that's you know great you're still in the game at a professional level or being at the same level that you were um, but one, you've got to deal with that. And that can be quite difficult knowing that you've gone down, you know, a couple of leagues. Um, 
um, especially when you've been used to being playing at the, at the top league. And then you get to that next stage where you, you've got to realise it is over and, you know, you go through that realisation sort of stage. And I won't bore you with all the stages, but then, you know, you get to stages where if you're lucky, you might have made enough money to be able to not worry about it. But the, for the majority of us, you still need to, to work and do, you know, do other things to, to keep the wolf from the door, so to speak, or if nothing else, to keep you in a lifestyle that you're accustomed to or, or, or your wife's, keep your wife in a lifestyle that she's accustomed to. Um, and, uh, you know, so you, you've got to do something and you go through a, a bit of a state of panic and, you know, experimentation, as I call one of the um, stages where you're trying different things and people are saying, oh yeah, I've got this idea. What about this? What about that? What about this? Da, 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 all this sort of stuff. And you could spend time, effort and money trying to um, make a big name for yourself in the world of business when you've actually not got the experience that your peers have the same age as you that you were at school with. Because when you left school and went down the professional sport route, they went down the, you know, the regular job route. And they're now 15, 20 years ahead of you in that because that's what they've been doing. You might have dabbled during your career, but this is what they've done all the time. And the problem with somebody who's competed in, in the top uh, echelon in their sport and their chosen sport it means everything they do, they want to be as good. It's very difficult to say, yeah, well, I was the best in that, but I'm happy to settle being fifth best in this. It doesn't happen. Your mindset is that you want to be the best that you can. It can be very frustrating because you, you kind of expect to turn your hand at these things and then to be successful straight away because you're still remembering your last successful career, which happened to be in your, your, your sport. Um, and then you get to a point where you, you know, you try all these things and some work, some don't, some work, some don't. And then you get to a point where um, I, 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 I'm trying to think of the word that I use, where you, you feel that you've, you know, you're now in a position where you're not wanting people to look at you and go, oh, my God, it's Derek Remen and drop to their knees. You're not in that do you know who I am kind of phase anymore, because in my case, many years past before I got to a point where I feel that I could in, 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 you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Integrate into the business world and not necessarily feel that everybody should know who I am and I should get any special, um, any special treatment. And, um, you know, I found speaking for me was the thing. And, you know, 24, 23 years ago, I got into speaking. Now in that, that whole transition from, from denial to the final stage of feeling that I can now integrate, as I say, I'm trying to think I'm saying that right, um, into the business world. That was a seven year period for me. And in that seven years, with all the, the ups and downs and the things that I tried, um, you know, was a, I've, I haven't even mentioned it, but in that seven years was a period of my life where I had a very successful business that ended up going bankrupt. And I personally went bankrupt for, 2.7 million pounds, lost everything. So, um, you know, there's a lot that can happen in that in, in that period, um, regardless to what sport you're in. Um, but when you come out of sport from one, uh, you know, at, at a very high level, you do grab at, clasp at straws and grab at straws. And, you know, it's like, there's that old saying, we're well, not saying, there's that old sort of image of, you know, a boxer who was great, well past his prime and still wants to keep on fighting and gets, you know, and it's not nice to see him getting battered in a ring by people that don't even deserve to be in the ring with him, let alone 
fighting him and, and making him look really bad. Um, and it's it's almost knowing how not to outstay your welcome, uh, for to, to, you know to, to to use another phrase. Um, so yes, it is very difficult for for sportsmen and women to just let go of what they've done, what they've put a hundred percent of their heart and soul into, what they've dedicated their life to, what they've sacrificed, um, you know, for made many many sacrifices for. Um, and, and some of those sacrifices could even involve, you know, from a financial point of view, from a finding a partner point of view, all those things. Um, it is difficult and, and it's not something that you can just turn off in, in, uh, in one fell swoop. So a bit of a long winded answer there, but I hope you kind of get what I was what I'm getting at. Yeah, absolutely. It makes perfect sense, Derek. And I think it's um, one thing that I kind of wondered when you were talking there. Do you think it's like there's almost an element of that kind of ego and drive and and the confidence and stuff that you were talking about there that you need to succeed at the at the top level is those same personality traits are what cause you problems later on when um yeah if you let them get away with you yeah i mean you need you know there is a thin line between uh, confidence and arrogance and as a top class sports person you need to walk that line make no bones about it you need to walk that line um you don't want to be on the other side of it where you come across as a complete arrogant person. Um, but you need to have that unbelievable confidence in your ability. Because, you know, one thing I always say, especially to, to, to young school students, is if you don't have the confidence in yourself and you don't believe in yourself, how do you expect anybody else to believe in you? And if other people don't believe in you, they're not going to particularly want to help you in pursuing whatever task it is so you've got to believe that yourself um there's a great story i tell about that um and um i was warming up once for a national championship i don't remember the year it may have been 91 it may have been 92 i think it was 91 and the world champs were taking place that year and i was in the 400 final and we were the last event of the day and maybe four events before us was the men's 100 meter final or 200 I think it was uh, one of the sprints and Linford was in the sprint so the usual process and process that you go through um, is there's an AstroTurf it's Alexander Stadium um, there's an AstroTurf area where you go and do your jogging and you're warming up and then you come inside to this room where there was a, an area it's normally the weight room but they move all the weights and that's where you do all your stretching and that's where your masseurs are there doing all your massage. So you start off with your massage, you go and do your jogging, you come and do your stretching, you go back out onto the Asher turf and do some drills and some sprints. And then you go onto the track, do a few more sprints, report, off you go. So it's a kind of the same process. Everybody goes through for every event. So the 100 meter runners were X amount of minutes in front of us during that process. So while I was getting my massage in the stretching room, they were already in the room stretching. And the 100 meter finalists, seven of them, apart from Linford, it's a national champion, they all know each other, were in that room doing their stretching. And some of the guys are chatting because they train with each other, others are speckled in different parts of the room. And I'm there with my masseur and the other, a few other 400 meter runners, because we're getting ready to start our warm up process, being rubbed down and all this sort of stuff. And the side door opened, bam, and it was slammed open. And everyone looked up because this door was just slammed open. And it was Linford, and he's a big he was the guy's cut out of granite i mean he was a big lump of a guy still is a big lump and i never forget it and because he slammed this door open everyone just looked up and went quiet there's linford there 
And he just looked around in the room. We're expecting something. My master stopped. I'm sort of half sat up now like this. And he just looked around and he looked at the, the, the other guys. And he kind of clocked them all. And he just said, fellas, I don't know why you're bothering taking your warm up so seriously because you're only warming up to see you finishes in second place. And everyone kind of giggled and laughed. And oh, yeah. And he went. And uh, I remember my uh, master, a guy called Johnny Davis, I turned around and I said, oh, typical Linford. And Johnny clocked. He went, uh, he went, wait for it. I went, what? He went, just lay down, carry on, let me carry on. He went, just wait for it. I went, wait for what? He goes, it will happen. So after Linford had done his thing and it's gone a bit quiet, and then the, the buzz and the hum starts back again, people start talking and giggling and whatever. And, and then I heard one of the 100 meter runners say, shout across the room to another 100 meter runner. Don't know why you're laughing. At. You ain't coming second. I'm coming second. No, you're not. I'm coming second. No, you're not. I'm coming second. And they all started arguing about who in second place. I guess he won the race. So, you know, you do need to have that confidence. And it's a perfect story. And Linford knew what he was doing. He knew he was just you know, rattling that, that, that bee's nest, a little stick in there, give it a little rattle and let, get them all excited and start stinging themselves. And that's what they did. And they all warmed up and trained to run for second place. And they all competed for second place while Linford stormed down the track, looking majestic and ended up, uh, you know, winning the national championship. Um, so there are times when, you know, your egos play a good part, but you're right, Daniel, there is a part sometimes when they can almost be a, a disadvantage and, and that's one of the things you've got to know when to kind of leave the ego at the door uh, and then step into that door um, and, and that's something that we all have to learn because you know just because I could do what I could do on the track for one lap in a very small time of of my life it doesn't make me any better than anybody else um, in the world regardless to age creed color sex whatever it's just that's what I, I was, you know, for a very small time, that's what I was, you know, one of the best at, but it doesn't make me a better person than anybody else. And I shouldn't expect anything or any more than, than you know, than anybody else. Yeah, you, you, you spot on, Derek. That's such a good story. I, do you know what as well? Um, when you said Alexander Stadium, I was like, I'm sure I recognise that name. So I Googled it and... Um, I'm glad that I've now got a, a funny story about Alexander Stadium. So I had, I think, one of the worst days I've ever had in my whole life at Alexander Stadium. When I was a when I was a kid, well, I say a kid, I must have been about 15, 16. It was when I was in year 11 at school. Yeah. I, I used to be in the in the athletics team and I used to throw discus. Right. And we went to um we went English to, schools? Yeah, there was like an English schools thing that we yeah. that, that we we got picked for. So I've, we've gone down to Birmingham, and I think it was on like a Saturday morning. And uh, and so we we gone down to Birmingham, and, and my uh, like uh, event was on was like one of the first ones on. So I think we got there at like eight, and then I was throwing discus at like quarter to nine or something. Yeah, yeah. So I've gone down to warm up, and I've I've done me practice throws and that, and then I've done me 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 throws and what have you, and got me here and I was like all right okay and I've gone back up to the the the, the PE teacher who was the coach and I was like um do I when, when do I throw again then sir and he was like no no, no that, that you're done for the day I was like what he was like yeah you don't know it was about 10 past nine and I said <laughs> I said when, when are we when are we leaving and he was like uh, the last event is at half five yeah I was like are you there? I was like what honestly I just could not believe it and I phoned my mum and I said to my mum I said you don't mind coming to Birmingham and picking me up? <laughs> she went, absolutely not. 
<laughs> you should have asked that question before you got on the coach this morning. So yeah. honestly, you just had a terrible day because I was because none of my yeah, like proper mates were in the athletics team either. So I was just kind of sat on my own all day. Yeah. Well, and it was I, horrible. I have the opposite. So when I was really young, I had the same thing, but in the opposite. But I knew it was coming. Um, uh, we again had to arrive at athletics meetings early because of all the damn discus throwers. Um, you know, <laughs> their events on, as you say, you know, first event. And because I was, you know, my event would be sometime in the day, one of them, but I'd always also be the very last event, the relays. So I was the opposite where I'd get there. I'd maybe have a race at four, but I'd have to stay till five, six o'clock because I got the damn relays. But we used to turn up on the coach at eight o'clock. So the discus throwers and the pole vaulters, that was the other one that was always early. <laughs> um, they could, you know, warm up and do all their stuff. And, you know, for the first five hours, we're just sitting there twilling our thumbs. So um, I feel your pain, but I was just on the other other end of it, not the beginning <laughs> end of the end. Yeah, yeah. So, I just uh, remember yeah. it being really cold as well. And yeah. I was just, I was like, oh God. I, and I think as well, um, Tramir were playing at home. I had to miss the, the match to oh, go. Right. Yeah. But I'd kind of thought... Like, you know, those things where you're like, oh, I, I'm not going to make it. But like in the back of my head, I was thinking, oh, we might just squeeze, we might just get back in time and, you know, I'll get me yeah, up to yeah, run yeah. me over there. And then when he was like, oh, five, I was like, oh, fuck's sake. <laughs> <laughs> one of the, um, one of the things that I, that, that, um, in an interview that I read that you, you did that quite recently, which was about your, um, campaign, which was, uh, is this you, yeah. which was around sort of, uh, the language that people use around uh, racism and racial stereotyping and, and that sort of thing. And we kind of have had a few conversations on this podcast about how important the use of language is with regards to mental health. And the example that we always use is the way if someone um, takes their own life, it's it's referred to as committing suicide, which mm. obviously harks back to when it was a, you know, when it was a crime many, many years ago. And, sort of how the changing of that language is important in changing the perceptions of, of suicide and mental health. Yeah. For you then, why was, was language and that kind of element of it such an important thing to sort of, to highlight? It, it was more than the language for me. Uh, what it was, uh, and the reason we called it Is This You, um, was because, and it was me and another uh, athlete called John Regis, uh, or Johnny Tuches Regis, because he was a big old lump if you remember him. Um, if you're going to Google him, you might need two screens to get his chest on if he's running there. Um, it was really to kind of get people to understand um, a, a bit more about racism and the fact that, you know, the natural thing for a lot of people to say is, I'm not racist, I'm not racist, I'm not racist. And sometimes you can say racist things, you can almost um, uh, do a racist thing, if that makes sense, you know, you know, sort of... Uh, some kind of something that would be deemed to be racist now i'll give you some examples so um you know before i give you the examples my 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 look on racism and, and how racist some people can be you know you can if you if you could put it on a scale of one to ten and this is kind of being idealistic and you know just for this conversation you know i feel if somebody is on a scale between seven and ten do you know what? There's not a lot I or we can do for them. Those guys and girls are, you know, top ranked in the Ku Klux Klan or whatever. You know, they are proper, proper racist. And there's a good chance that you're not going to be able to turn those around. It's not impossible, but, you know, you've got your work cut out to do that. 
if they're, I don't know, somewhere on that scale between five and seven, that's pretty racist, but you might be able to reason with these people and, and sit them down and over a period of time kind of show what they're doing actually isn't right and we can all learn from that and by the way this is racist sexist whatever the case may be it all works in, for me on the same sort of scale but if you're between one and five then there's a good chance that a very high chance that through education we can change them so um i'll give an example of a, a racist action um i was once in a shop in la um and I remember there was me and one of my training partners, my best friend, a guy called Phil Brown, a great 400 meter runner, Olympic silver medalist. And we had gone into this stereo shop to buy, uh, I'm going to tell you how long ago it was now, to buy a new Walkman. Um, shows you my age. Um, <laughs> I won't say anything, Zedek, I promise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a counter um where you could sort of stand over and lean on it and inside the counter was all glass and you could see loads of different different uh, walkmans and i knew the one i wanted it was called a sony voodoo car and it had extra bass and it came with big headphones and this and that and i wanted one of these and um we're looking and i said oh yeah there's so i was like whatever there's a phillips one there blah 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 and all this sort of stuff so there's me and phil and then there's a a, a white lady um who's got a handbag on the uh, uh, on the counter and she's standing almost to the other side of the handbag. So there's Philip or Phil, me, handbag, owner. And as we're talking, and we're not chatting, I think we're just going, oh, yeah, that's not, yeah, well, yeah. And we, we're waiting to be served, basically. And we're going, oh, yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, 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 blah, blah, blah. And she kind of double took because she could hear us having a conversation. She sort of went, and as soon as she did that, she picked her bag up, moved it to the other side and then realized, no, that's not good enough. And then immediately picked it up, put it on a shoulder on the right-hand side and squeezed it and just edged away from us a little bit. And Phil and I just looked at each other and smiled because we knew exactly what went through her mind. Never said anything about it, didn't even do anything. This is going back, I don't know, uh, late nineties. Didn't really just, just, um, uh, sorry, late eighties. What am I talking about? Late eighties. Didn't think about it. So that's a racist action. We all know um, what she thought. She thought, oh, two black guys, one of them might snatch my bag and run. Um, and had we did, she would have never caught us because we were two of the fastest guys in the country anyway, two of the fastest guys in the world, but that was the issue. So that's one thing. Um, and I'm not saying she is an out and out racist, but through her actions, you know, they call it racial profiling now, but she had a preconceived idea of what Phil and I was like. Now that's down to education. Now there may be a percentage of black guys in that position, saw the bag, may have gone for it. But there's also percentages of white guys, Asian guys, whatever, Italian guys, German guys, who knows who would have done exactly the same thing. But I'm pretty sure that had that have been a white guy, she wouldn't have taken that same kind of um, action. So that's, you know, what I refer to as a racist action, and it, it comes down to education. Something that was once said to me, and this was only, I think it was last year. I was in Tunbridge Wells, a nice part of the country, um, and I was invited to a private school to speak at their end of year um, awards event and hand out some prizes to the kids. 
and um, after that, there was a sports day put on, and they wanted me to hang around and, and cheer on the kids in the in this sports day. Fine, I was getting paid to do the job. Fantastic. I'd been in London the night before. I, do, I remember I did a job at the IV. Uh, my wife came with me, and that evening we drove from uh, the middle of London all the way to Tunbridge Wells. It was a lovely day. I remember we had the roof down on the way because um, we left quite late from the IV, eleven o'clock, whatever. Turned up at the hotel at Tunbridge Wells, checked in, whatever. Went to spend the morning. Beautiful summer's day. Go and do my talk, which was a, one of the first things. Did all the awards, all that sort of stuff. And they gave us lunch. Um, the kids were outside playing, all this sort of stuff. Um, and all the dignitaries and the VIPs were having this lovely lunch. Uh, parents were with, and grandparents with their kids. They brought their picnics and their bottles of you know bottles of champagne and all this and their all they're having their picnics and their cucumber sandwiches and all this sort of stuff. Very very nice Saturday afternoon. Kids are all doing their running their events and I go and watch a few of them and parents are talking to me and this and that. And this old boy, 70 if he was a day, um, three-piece tweed suit. And uh, he says, oh, marvellous talk, young man, marvellous talk. And I said, oh, thank you very much. He says, yeah, marvellous. He says, um, my uh, granddaughter, she, uh, you gave her an award uh, earlier on and she's a, she's a good athlete, good, good sprinter. Went, oh, brilliant, you know. She she finished fourth in a big race uh, a few a few weeks a few months ago. I can't remember what it was, and I said, "Oh, did she?" He, he said, "You can't remember what race it was." She said, "No, no." And he went, "Whatever her name was, went, come over here, come over here." She goes, "Yes, Granddad." What was that race you finished fourth in? And she said, "Oh, it was the English schools, Granddad." So I said, "I'm English schools. That's fourth. That's fantastic." I said, "I've competed a couple of times in English schools, and the best I could manage was second. So I said, "You know, that's that's really good, Gary." And he went, yes, yes, she could only finish fourth. There's no way she was going to get any better than that because your lot were way too quicker. And my wife and I just looked <laughs> at each other. And we were like, your lot? Now, again, I should have, but I didn't. And I just left it at something. Now, I don't think he's out and out racist, but his language and the way that he come across is not particularly, it wasn't, wasn't great. So the whole reason for the is this youth uh, campaign was for um other athletes um uh, people from you know um, we pretty much use athletes and well-known black people uh, for the short time that we did it to tell a story in under two minutes about a situation where there was at a so-and-so i was doing this this was saying that this person said or did this and then the end thing they say is they just turn around and say is this you because I didn't want them to tell the story as them being a victim. I wanted them to turn it around 180 degrees and talk about the perpetrator. Because for me, a lot of people, and I had so many people come back to me and say, oh my God, I'm sure I've done that. I'm sure I've said that. Oh God, I'm so embarrassed. Derek, thank you so much for making me aware of what I have, an action I've taken or something that I've said that can be deemed as now racist and is a racist act or a racist thing to say. I mean, I mean, we've all done it, you know. I'm, I'm you know, I'm going to be honest here. When we were younger, you know, bunch of lads, you know, whether you're at school or whatever, you say, "Ah, oh, come on, let's go and play on the the train line." No, you can't do that. Oh, come on, you was go on, stop being gay. Come on, let's do it. <laughs> we literally had this exact same conversation the other day. Yeah. That, that's so funny because we were saying. Um... We were talking about use of language, that same thing. And we were yeah. saying everyone in school used to go, oh, that's gay. Oh, this is gay. Absolutely. Stop being gay. And Stop like, gay. You, you don't really understand. You just know, you're just using it you as a, it. A, a, a oh, term. The, the weirdest one that I saw 
reasonably uh, recent. Um, it was a few years ago. It didn't involve me. I was watching Tiger Woods playing and um, he was expected to play well. He didn't play well. And in the conference, he sat down and he said, yeah, I played like a spaz. And they picked up on it and they absolutely just went to town with him. And again, it was a word that we used as kids and it was kind of accepted. Um, the same was, as you just said, you know, don't be gay. You know, it was just praises that were said and there were throwaway comments that we used and didn't even give it a second thought. Um, and it's no difference in racism. So those situations really doesn't come down to out and out racism or sexism or whatever it is. It comes down to education. Mm. And that's what I wanted to try and get across. Um, I, I remember speaking to a, um, a CEO um, of uh, you know a, a big company, quite a large company, uh, five, 600 people worldwide. Um, and we were having the conversation and he turned around and we were talking about this all during his Black Lives Matter. I'm mean, going back a couple of months, two and a half months ago. And he says, yeah, oh, yeah, but Derek, he goes, he says, you know, I, I feel you, you know, I kind of feel you at your pain, but, you know, it doesn't really affect me. I'm a middle-aged white man who's the CEO of a, you know, a multinational business. And I turn around and said to him, it does affect you because you might not say something, but you might hear something. And the whole point of me doing this is so I can educate everybody. And if you hear someone saying the equivalent of don't be gay or your lot or whatever, you can pull them up on it because you have as much right to say to someone, that's the wrong thing to say. That's a racist thing to say. That's a sexist thing to say or whatever, as I do. Um, so I said, you do have a, you know, it has got a lot to do with you. And he turned around and he went, I've never looked at it that way. And I said, well, this is what I'm trying to get across. And I think education for me is the best way of doing this. Let, you know, getting people to understand that what they say and, and some of the actions they take are racist things to say or, or racist actions to take and will be received in a, you know, in, 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 a, in a hostile way towards that person. And why wouldn't it be? Um, you know, we all watch TV programs from years gone by and you think, oh my God, how can they say things yeah. like that? You know, um, you know, whether it be on race and this and that. Um, you know, I remember seeing a program uh, about, you know, programs in the 70s, not necessarily just about racist things, but how they could get away with some of the things they did and said. And there, I don't know if you remember a Again, you're possibly too young, but there was a program called Butterflies on years and years and years ago. And it was about, mainly about the, the, the mum. So it was the mum, the dad, and I think she had two or three sons, at least a couple of sons. And it was an actress called Wendy Craig. And a lot of the thing was about her, the program was just about mainly her being a, a housewife, husband or girl from work, two kids at university or whatever. And um, and her just be living this uh, humdrum housewife, kind of life so a lot of it was about her thoughts so you'd see her sitting down but you could hear her thoughts her, she would narrate her thoughts or whatever and there was one time I don't know I can't remember the full scene but I don't know the postman came to the door and you know hunky bloke or whatever and you, you hear her going you hear her as a doorbell and in her head she doesn't say anything but in her head you hear a voice saying oh that'd be the postman oh he's a lovely looking fella he is Oh, it's nice weather. I bet he's got that tight T-shirt on. And she opens the door and he goes, there you go, here's your parcel. And she goes, thank you. And as the door closed, she goes, oh my God, you had that T-shirt on. 
I wish I could just get him in here and just ravish me. God, I wish he would just rape me. And that's what she actually says in the thing. And he got the old canned laughter. And you cannot imagine that being allowed to be on TV in this day and age. That's insane, that, isn't it? Yeah, she actually said that the programme is called Butterflies. And she actually said, and she's just saying it in her mind of what she wants this guy to do to her. And she said, oh, I wish he would just rape me. And you just think, and because this program was about, you know, programs of the 70s, they've got stars of today from film, sport, goodness knows what, watching this. And you know, these programs where they interview them and say, oh God, and this bit made me laugh today. And you've got these people going, oh my God, did she just say that? You know, you've got these comedians or whatever talking about it. You just cannot believe that it was said. So we, you know, the world has has come a long, long way from what is socially acceptable uh, and what you can say um, from, from, from where it was. And as I say, that's not just with racism or sexism. It's just with things that you, you know, publicly, publicly accepted and not, and we know more, a lot, we're a lot more educated. And that's why we, we, we did the Is This You? And we called it Is This You? Because we just wanted people to say, is this you? Is this something that you have done? inadvertently well now we're making you aware of it do something about it and if you hear it or see it do something about it because if we can change that one to five that's a lot of people we've we've we, you know we've, 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 we've educated and changed then we can think about working on the five to ten which is a bigger job but we've got more people to do that um and, and that was kind of the point of it on the butterfly story you just told then uh derek Funnily enough, I had a conversation with my dad today about, remember the song by Mungo Jerry, Summertime? Yeah. And it came it came on radio too, and I was listening to the lyrics, thinking, imagine you tried to release this song now. It's like, have a drink, have a drive, go out and see what you can find. And then yeah. there's another lyrics like, if a daddy's rich, take her out for a meal. Yeah. If a dad's poor, just do what you feel. Yeah. <laughs> I was listening to it thinking, could you imagine writing that song now and releasing it? It's, but it's not actually that long ago. <laughs> no, no, I think that was 70s or 80s, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, 70s, um, I think. Yeah. It was, um, Blade Lines is is, is 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 bad as well, isn't it? That Robin <laughs> Thicke song. But yeah, but there's just so many, you know, things out there, whether it's a song, whether it's an old TV program. I mean, the one that always comes up is that Love Thy Neighbour where you had a black family living next to a white family and he was always calling him a, a nignog and he was he was calling the black guy, oh, you nignog and the black guy's always going, you white honky. And and we used to sit and watch and laugh at this. You know, you had Alf Garnet. I mean, you know, it, it was just, you didn't think about it. And now you just think, my God, how did we get away with that? I mean, the one that gets me, if you really want to, you know, <laughs> talk about these things is uh, there's two programs captain pugwash captain pugwash roger the cabin boy and seaman stains i mean how did they get away with that it was just you know unbelievable um it's just crazy you may not remember captain pugwash but some of the names they had for these guys seaman stains and roger the cabin boy i mean really and you yeah. must have thought these guys writing it must have been I don't know, high laughing, thinking, you can't believe BBC or ITV are going to let us get away with this, you know, and just, oh, man. And as, as you sort of say, Derek, as well, it's not always the malice intended by the viewer, but it's the blissful ignorance of not realising how offensive these things can be. Absolutely. And unfortunately now, uh, being ignorant is not an excuse. Mm. Yeah. Um, you know, um, there's, 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 
too many platforms on how we can change uh, and, and educate people. Um, you know, these things, you know, mobile phones, they, they are, you know, you can go around the world twice in 10 minutes on a mobile phone. You know, you can pretty much see pretty much everything. So there's no excuse for ignorance anymore. Um, and, 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 and that's why I, you know, I felt quite strongly and still do that if we can educate people that well, very strongly, if we can educate people, then we've got a chance of, of, of changing the way uh, people um, act and behave in this world. Welcome back. You're still listening to my mark and I've still got Ryan with me today. Ryan, from uh, from listening back to that interview, obviously you and I did that interview with, with Derek a, a short while back. What were your kind of biggest takeaways, biggest learning points that you got from, from that interview? I thought it was um, really interesting from somebody who's who's competed at the level that Derek competed at was he said don't mix confidence with arrogance which I thought was very good and um, took the message that you can take pride in what you're good at and not feel guilty about that without actually using it to maybe I don't know rub people up the wrong way or, or, or make out you're, you're actually better than anybody you can be humble with confidence you can believe in what you're going to do and I think to make it at that that sort of elite level there's, there's got to be an air of confidence about you you've got to have belief in what you do he told quite a funny story around Winford Christie and, and how he would behave around other athletes and, and you kind of enjoy hearing stories like that and I think I think people can appreciate that if you are putting the time and effort and the hours that you don't see into into yourself, into your sport, then then you, you're gonna have to sort of have that little bit of edge to you, which I thought was very interesting. Um, I also thought there was a, a very important reminder in how casual racism can be, and he, he told quite a few stories there about sort of meeting certain people and, and certain often events involving children and kind of family-led events and just the casual nature that racism happens. And we've talked a lot in this in this podcast around language and the importance of language and language can be your body language it can be uh your, your physical words that, that you say to somebody and there was two stories there there was, there was one with the handbag and there was the one at the i think it was like a sports day and i just think it was a gentle reminder to everybody derek was somebody that was very aware and, and very humble and, and very calm about things that he's experienced in his life and he didn't really hold anything against people but I think it was an important reminder. And I think when somebody doesn't shout the message and they, they relay it to you of their own experiences in the way that he did, it does kind of open your eyes to that racism doesn't always have to be this horrific stuff you see on the internet and the horrific abuse people see. It happens in, in a number of ways. And it's important that um, people use language in the proper way. Uh, and then we had a, I think we had a talk about song lyrics after that and, and things in which these things occur. And, and often, they're not ill-natured, but they're still inappropriate. And I think it's it's something that we could all all learn from. Yeah, I think Derek said that was was talking about a lot of um a lot of prejudice, particularly with with racism and the same we've seen. I mean, it's it's been football versus transphobia week uh, recently, and and I think a lot of this stuff is born out of born out of either ignorance as, as much as anything else. And and Derek was saying, you know, ignorance isn't an excuse anymore, particularly particularly with racism. I think it's it's I think everyone should know that the you know the rights and the wrongs, and if you don't, and it's pointed out to you, then it's you know accepting that and and changing your behaviour. And I think that's incredibly important. The first point you were making, Ryan, about about uh, you know that confidence and arrogance thing, I think kind of building on that. 
given that it was, you know, I think competing at an elite level, I think, as you say, really important to have an edge because it's it's such a cutthroat environment, isn't it, at that level? And I think, you know, after listening to Dan Abrahams last week, um, sorry, earlier this week, I think now that you sort of listen to someone like Derek, and we've had it with, with footballers as well, the sort of focus, the dedication, the mindset that those elite athletes have, you know, with that really kind of upper, upper echelon, which, which Derek operated that for a number of years. I do think that it's kind of, I mean, we've talked, haven't we, on this podcast about maybe football and, and potentially probably other sports as well, but football is the one we've concentrated on mostly, is maybe not the right environment for certain personality types. And I think when you listen to somebody like Derek and you think to have that 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 inner confidence, that you know, that 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 mindset that, that you can compete at that level and you can operate at that level and taking the knockbacks, you know, the injuries and being able to to take on what the sports psychologist and other people around you are saying and getting back on the horse, so to speak. And I think it's quite clear, isn't it, for maybe certain personality types, maybe people who've got that talent and the ability, but but maybe they've got a, a slightly different personality type that you can see how, you know, when we talk about mental health, that it could be a really difficult place for for somebody to operate, couldn't it? You know, somebody who's who's maybe not built like that and maybe isn't as innately confident that being in such a cutthroat, such a, such a, you know, such a, a competitive environment could be really hard for someone. Yeah, you, you get the impression that there's some people that will naturally embrace that and some people even play up to it. They're, they're very good at playing the villain or they're, they're, they're happy in interacting with crowds and they can take it on the chest and, and still perform. And there's probably, well, there's definitely other people that just want it to end. And what could have potentially been the best period of their life ends up becoming almost the worst. And it's a relief when they get out of it because they just don't want that focus on them. And that's quite a natural thing, whether it's public speaking, whether it's standing up in front of a crowd, performing in front of a crowd, whatever it is, we, we all know somebody or we're that person ourselves. I know I certainly am. That almost goes to pieces at the thought of doing that. So if you can imagine competing at that level, like being at your physical best, trying to get a personal best if it comes to running and, and also the disappointments and we haven't really touched on it here because I think it's plain for everyone to see the resilience shown to take years. I'm not talking years. It's with, with athletics, it's not like there's another game next week to get it out of your head and it's, it's, it's often you're working towards one goal, the Olympics or the European Championships, whatever it may be. And to get injured at that moment and have that setback Imagine doing it's like doing a jigsaw for four years, and you go to put the final piece, and the someone opens a window and it just blows away, and you're like, "I've just spent the last four years of my life putting this together, and it, my body's failed me now." And that's that's an incredibly tough thing to go through, and I think it gives you an, I think it gives you an experience that most people in the world never have, mm. and it must give you a skill set and a. a Focus, isn't it? I think it's focus. I think it's it's kind of like a lesson in life that I don't think anyone really experiences. You can't really imagine what it does to you. Like it could turn into resentment. It can turn into his case. It's quite nice that it actually turned into an iconic moment. Mm. Not that he would have preferred what happened than winning or competing or finishing in the top three and getting podium. At least he took in the split second he made that decision to do what he did. His dad made the decision to do what he did, and ultimately it's become this almost inspirational message and marketing for the for the Olympics. And I, I think that is nice. I think it is good that 
that's how it ended out of all the outcomes of ending with a yeah. what was a horrendous injury. So, um, and I think that just summed up Derek, wasn't he? He was a very resilient, positive character, always moving forward, whatever it was in life. And um, I think for anybody listening, that type of um, resilience, while not always can it be taught, you do have it in you if you have that little bit of belief that you can keep moving forward without sounding too cliche and too cheesy, I think. He didn't even think that day he would get up and finish the race, and and, and he did. And I think we can all take a bit of a, a message from that. Yeah, hundred percent, mate, hundred percent. And I think that's a, I think that's a nice place for us to wrap up and and uh, and move on to to Derek's quick fire to finish off the episodes for today. Ryan, thanks for your time, mate, as usual, and thanks to you, the listener, for for being with us today. If you have enjoyed today's episode, if you enjoyed any of the episodes that we've brought you, then if you could hop over to Apple Podcasts to iTunes give us a rating and a review. It does really help us to, to grow the podcast and reach new listeners. And we're going to take this opportunity as usual to, to sign posts. So if you are struggling at all with your own mental health, with your own mental well-being, Samaritans have a 24-hour, 24-7 phone line available, and that's 116123. And the same goes for Calm Zone, who operate from 5 p.m. to midnight with the telephone service, and that's 0800 58 58 58. And before we hand you over to Derek's quick fire, remember that the purpose of man marking is to encourage men to become more comfortable talking about their mental health. We've started that conversation today, but we're asking you to keep it going. Talk to your friends, talk to your family, talk to your colleagues, even talk to strangers. But most important of all, remember to listen. Sometimes listening could save a life. Thank you for listening to us today. And we'll pass you over now to Derek's quick fire and we'll see you next time. I read that you're a Newcastle fan. Is that right? No, um, I did a bit of pre-season training with Newcastle, um, and I think that's where it, it came from. And uh, you're not the first person to say that. And I remember being introduced at the Stadium of Light at Sunderland I was speaking at, and they <laughs> referred to me as a Newcastle fan. So that didn't go down too well. Do you have a favourite sporting moment outside of any of your own? i tell you what, which was a really nice moment, was seeing Muhammad Ali... Muhammad Ali light the Olympic torch in 96 in Atlanta. That was a pretty cool, you know, cool thing to see. Derek, I, 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 you were obviously uh, born in, 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 the, in the Milton Keynes area, um, famous for its, its many, many roundabouts. <laughs> yeah. Do you know how many roundabouts there are in Milton Keynes? Too bloody many. Um, <laughs> no, I don't. I mean, I don't live in Milton Keynes. I was born in a place called Bletchley which has pretty much been swallowed up by the whole of Milton Keynes. It's still around, but um, the Milton Keynes that everybody loves and knows with all the roundabouts wasn't there when I was a, a kid. But, oh, God, no, I, won't, I haven't got a clue, but there's way too many. Um, and I know there's too many because when I used to ride bikes on the road, which I don't anymore, and we used to go out for rides in Milton Keynes, you couldn't get out to any decent speed because every few hundred yards was a damn roundabout. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it stopped a lot of a uh, lot of problems, a lot of wheelies, and a lot of mischief. Those roundabouts. Uh, the the answer the answer is one hundred and thirty. <laughs> and I bet that's in about a, a, a I don't know a two square mile. One hundred and thirty. I I believe um, that when they were designing Milton Keynes, there was possibly one hundred and thirty. Now I know it's that number. There must have been one hundred and thirty people stood around a massive map all with cups of tea and they put them on the map 
And, um, <laughs> and then when they all picked them up and they said, right, go and build that, there was all these tea stains. They were, oh, right, yeah, it must be all roundabouts. And that's why they, <laughs> that's my theory. I like it. I'll get on board with that. How hard is it to pass the baton in the Olympic relay when you're running so fast? I mean, I always found it really hard at sports day. Uh, okay, well, there's two different there's two events. There's a four by one where they 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 uh, pass the baton at serious speed, which is a lot harder, and it's a blind changeover. And what I mean by that, the outgoing runner doesn't see the baton. He sees the athlete coming in. He turns around and runs, waits for the outgoing runner to shout "hand." His hand will go back, and hopefully, he puts it in. That's difficult. In a four by four, it's a visual changeover and it's a lot slower because you're not running as quick over 400 as you are over 100. So you can spot the athlete coming in, you can pace what you go off at and you can keep your eye on the bat and grab it and go. So um, a lot easier in a four by four. What does make it difficult, depending on the leg, um, if you're on the third um, changeover or the final changeover, is you've got other bodies around you and it can get a little bit, uh, a little bit physical. Um, but, you know, in a four by four, I wouldn't say it's particularly difficult. It's just about getting the timing right. But four by one, as we've seen over the years with not just British teams, but American, goodness knows what, baton dropping is is a you know a big part of it, unfortunately. Is there any sport that you tried your hand at that you wasn't good at, Derek? Yeah, and I still play it. It's called bloody golf. <laughs> <laughs> it just bugs the crap out of me. I love it and I hate it at the same time. I played with my son on Saturday in the first four holes. Good old saying, I couldn't hit a cow's ass with a banjo. Uh, and then I got some good holes and then bad. It's just, you know, and I have lessons. I, I go in the driving range. I try and play, you know, on a weekly basis. But it's just it's just not getting it. I just struggle. And then, you know, I see some people on the course and they've got the weirdest, wackiest swing. And they're in it down the middle. I'm thinking, why? Why? What am I doing here as well? Golf is the most frustrating sport, so that's the sport that really, really bugs me, and I want to get good at it. I so want to be good at it. Yeah, I'm a bit like that myself. I'm a little bit sad. <laughs> I just know I haven't got the patience for it. Oh. I just know I'd get, I'll, I'll get bored and frustrated after about 15 minutes. Yeah. I well, only... Every every round I quit. I say, that's it. I'm not playing this bloody game again. That's <laughs> it. I'm not going to take up another sport. And then, oh, that was a great hole. Oh, I forget about it. And then. You, you know, yeah, all right, I'll play again. And the next time, oh, I'm never going to play again. And you go through the same process every round, every round. There's often a lot of stories about the Olympic villages being very debauched and akin to a carnival. How, how true is that? Sorry, we lost signal there. I must be driving <laughs> through a tunnel. Next question. <laughs> what happens in the Olympic village stays in the Olympic village. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, let's put it this way. Um... I remember one year going to games and we got given a load of condoms um, and it ha actually had written on them, the only, the only event where you want to finish second. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, it's, 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 it's not as bad as people make it. I think it's a bit of a myth. Of course, you've got these superhuman beings super fit females and males all around and have spent all this time and they're you know um preparing performing doing their sport and, the, and at the end of it you know um you can let your hair down for a, a you know a, a couple of days and and uh people want to you know enjoy themselves in whatever way that they they do i mean you know not anything i ever saw or got involved in obviously <laughs> extremely diplomatic answer that <laughs> um 
on the um in the the, the ninety two Olympics, the the video where you were with your dad, he was wearing a shirt that said, "Have you hugged your foot today?" Yeah. How exactly do I go about hugging my foot? <laughs> By buying a particular pair of uh, trainers. So that basically, um, uh, and the shoes are still going now. So back then, I was contracted to Nike, and uh, you turn up at a major championship, and you get uh, you go to uh, you know Nike's headquarters for those championships. If I remember rightly, they took over a tennis center and they took over the whole place. You could go there and chill out. There's food. Um, it's where they did the press conferences and goodness knows what. And, and the first day you go, you, you give your name, you tick it off, you get your wristband or whatever on your accreditation that you wear for the duration of the championship so you can come and go. And there is always a massive, massive bag of kit for you, a uh, commemorative bag of kit. Um, and, in, and in there there's you know, for me, there were spikes that they had they sent over for me and goodness knows what, because more of mine were personally made and all that. Trainers, this, that, T-shirt, polo shirt, shorts, tracksuit, all this stuff. Massive bag of kit. I mean, so the size of the bag is what you normally turn up at a Sunday league football match with, with all the teams kitting. I mean, it's a massive bag of kit. Well, Nike always used to do one for me and also one for my dad. So that T-shirt, Have You Hugged Your Foot Today, was advertising the Air Harachi, which was a new yeah. shoe that Nike had came out with back then. So that phrase, Have You Hugged Your Foot Today, and on the bottom of it is the original design of the Air Harachi. Yeah. And he just happened to have it on that day. Um, so, in fact, all the kit that my dad had on, because Nike used to supply my dad some clothes as well, was actually out of that bag of kit. So the blue kind of tennis shorts, the white socks with the little blue Nike swoosh, that T-shirt, the cap. I think it had just do it on it. Um, everything he had was 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 Nike. So um, It's about very, like Tony Pulis. He, he was. And I, I, I know it was a lot of kit because I turned up and ticked my name off the bar, you know, on the list. And they said, oh, yeah, here's your bag of kit. And I went, oh, hold on a minute. Jim Redmond, here's your dad's. Bam. And they put that down. I had to carry these two. It was like doing the farmer's walk in Britain's Strongest Man or World's <laughs> With these two dirty great bags. And... Um, I had to take one to, you know, uh, or my dad came and collected it. I took it back to Olympic Village and he came and collected it. So, um, yes, it was, uh, that's why he had all that on. But they always used to supply my dad kit. And, you know, he always used to joke and say, look, you know, um, just send me the biggest shot putter size you've got because it will fit. Um, and that's why, that was his kind of joke um, that he used to say. But, um, yeah, they always used to, wherever I went, they'd, they'd take care of my dad as well as, uh, you know, sort of take care of me. With that being such iconic footage, imagine Nike made up that he's head to toe in Nike. Well, I suppose that's one of the reasons he gave him the kit. That wasn't on the plans, was it? Yeah. But, um, you know, you never know what's going to happen. So to give my old man who followed me around the world pretty much all the time, um, you know, a, a, a bit of kit, a few T-shirts and shoes some shorts and, and whatnot, um, I, I'm, I'm sure for them they must have been rubbing their hands together when that was on the TV live every day because the only thing I had on that was Nike would have been my spikes and socks if I wore any socks because obviously you've got to wear a national kit and that was Adidas. Um, so my vest, shorts or skin suit, I think I, you know, was uh, was, was Adidas. So um, I can obviously run in my um, sponsored spikes, which I would have done obviously, which was, was, was Nike. But my old man was kitted head to toe to Nike. So he actually had more kit on Nike kit on than I did. Man, man, man.